We've all been in fights. We've all been in arguments. And they never feel good. But it's even worse when our argument is overheard by someone else. Here are some real-life fights that have been overheard in real life, and I found these off the internet. It's not me overhearing your conversations. <laughs> this is uh, what I've... So there was one time, there were these guys overheard on a train who were fighting about what you get when you multiply 70 times 2. They were having a fight about that. I'm not sure why, but they were. And then there's another time where, where there were two people who were overheard arguing whether if one of them was right there in a death match with a swan, who would win if the guy had, was armed with nothing, was only wearing a pair of trousers? That was the source of the argument. And the last one, which is my favorite, is that there were two guys overheard arguing at a bus station about whether it's pronounced Honda or Hyundai. Now, what I've realized in, in my life is that some people love wading into arguments. They love, you know, the rush of really, um, really getting into it with their friends or with their not-so-friends, especially on social media. But what I've learned is that, and I've learned this the hard way, is that it's often, it's often best not to. You see, I have yet to see someone mid-fight on Facebook suddenly say, actually, you're right. Let me change my entire viewpoint on life. You've changed my mind. You see, we fight because we're right. We, we, we all believe that we have righteousness on, on my side. No one goes into a fight thinking that they're in the wrong. And this includes Jesus' apprentices. Let's turn to Mark chapter 9, verse 33. Okay, so Jesus has left the Caesarea Philippi region where, where we learned last week that we don't need to wait to 100% believe before we start to 100% pray. And then he takes his men on a very slow road trip that's 45 kilometers long back to the region of Galilee. And what we learn in this passage is that he's actually keeping a really low profile because this is his time to really teach them and to get into them. This isn't the time for miracles. He's, he's now shifting his focus to to focusing on the cross. Everything is now heading that way. Now, on this journey, we assume that he says a lot, but the Coles Notes version of what he says is in verse 31, where he says, the Son of Man is, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But still, his apprentices are absolutely clueless. And then they arrive back at Capernaum, which is his old stomping ground. Because if you remember, this is where he called his first followers, and this is where he started his ministry. Then they reach their 
ministry base, which is probably Simon Peter's house. And then they walk in and they get ready. They relax. They probably wash their feet and they're ready for the meal. And then Jesus asks them a totally loaded question. He says to them, you were arguing about something on the road. What was it? And really, at this moment, what he's saying to them is, look, I know you messed up. And you know that I know. And I know that you know that I know. And you know that I know that you know that I know. Now, are you going to take this opportunity and be frank with me or not? And their response is nothing. Silence. Not a word. Not a peep. And why is this? Because we're told that they had argued about who was the greatest. Okay, fine. You don't want to tell me? But he knows their hearts. He knows exactly what's happening. And so he calls a family meeting. And his apprentices, these folks that should have known much, much better, kind of slink over to him like they've been caught with their hands in the community jar of maple syrup. He sits down rabbi style like he's about to school them well. And he says, okay, attention class, our lesson for this morning is that anyone who wants to be first must be the last and the servant of all. And at that moment, you can almost feel the shame in the room, the, the, the red faces and the sweaty pits, because now they know that Jesus heard their stupid fight on the road. And then there in that house, the Lord grabs a kid, uh, uh, which is probably one of Peter's. He wraps his arms around this youngster and he learns them a lesson that they will never forget. But let's make something clear. He's not using a child as an example because they're full of purity and trust and hope, because they're lovely and because they're sweet. No, he uses a kid because in the society back then, children were nobodies. They were the lowest on the totem pole. They had no rights. And so he says in verse 37, welcome nobodies like this nobody kid in my name because in welcoming these nobody kids, you're welcoming me. And when I move into the picture, then you will, you, you will understand that even though you are a nobody, you are loved by the largest and the greatest somebody in the universe, which is, which is my father. And that makes you somebody. You see, we have to realize that you aren't all that, and I'm not all that, but the Lord is. And he asks us into this relationship that we can experience his all thatness. And as we experience his all thatness, his all thatness becomes our all thatness. This is his mercy and his wonderful grace. We read about this in 1 Corinthians 1, where St. Paul says this, when, when God called you in the world's estimation, 
You were nothing. You weren't wise. You weren't well-born. You weren't influential. And God chose you on purpose. It's like the Lord wants to get your bus journey of life started already. But he won't start until you sit in the back seat. Way, way at the back. Because that's when he knows that you're serious about letting him drive. And he says, I'm ready to start the bus, but I won't start until you sit at the back. Not the front seat, the back seat. You see, if you want to take five steps forward with God, you've got to take two steps back first. That's how it always has to start. The way to get ahead with the Lord is at the back of the pack. This is the kingdom of the servant king. And so the first lie that we need to resist is this lie that says, I'm all that. And the second lie that we need to resist is the lie that says, God needs me. You see, the disciples had been told earlier, and we heard about this last week, that, that, that they had the power to throw out evil spirits. And then we heard last week that they had this re, um, really embarrassing moment uh, where they weren't able to cast out from this young lad one particular spirit. And we learned that it's because they weren't praying, they were trying to rely on their own strength. But now, to make it worse, someone else has now moved in and he's able to do it. Verse 38. We read, teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop. Now, when I read this, I'm thinking, what, what is the milestone of emotions happening in the disciples' hearts at that moment? We read pride, we read jealousy, we read fear, we read insecurity, we read self-righteousness. Because what had just happened is that, is that the Lord had really told them off. And then they changed you know, the subject to something else, kind of hoping that maybe Jesus wouldn't notice. And now they're waiting for you know, the Lord to say, you did well. You did exactly the right thing. You've totally redeemed yourselves, guys. I didn't think you were able to do it, but you did. Instead, what they hear from Jesus is, you don't stop him. Because what the Lord says is that someone who's doing Jesus' work for him cannot, in the next moment, rub Jesus' name in the mud. What the Lord is saying is that, is that all of the proof that he needs that this man is part of Jesus' team is there. If he's not for Jesus, if he's, if he's not against Jesus, he's for Jesus. You know, the Lord knows that he's heading towards a fight the largest fight he's ever had that will result in him actually dying on the cross. So he knows that he has many, 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 many enemies. He doesn't need to create more. But we do that as the church, right? We're so suspicious of each other. We think that we are doing it the best. Um, and ministers and pastors, we're sometimes the worst of the bunch. We, we can be so insecure and proud and fearful and self-righteous. 
Yeah, this, this week I was, I, was, I was in this round table with a, with a Baptist minister, with a Presbyterian pastor, with a pastor, pastoral team um, from a French-speaking church, um, with another Wesleyan church, and with a community church. And I know that sounds like the start of a joke, but it actually happened. But how could we do that? How could we sit sit as a team and share our thoughts and share our ideas because what united us was our longing to shepherd our churches into becoming the healthiest that they, that they are able to be. And so, yes, we have to hold on to truth, which is God's revelation in his word. But let's move away from this faithful few mentality that says, you know what, we at Cornerstone Wesleyan Church we're the only ones who really get it. Our version of the faith is the truest and the best. What I believe is that if we make our lives, our life's obsession to know God and to grow in God and to show him to others, then we don't have time for spiritual, um, spiritual hierarchy. You know, we sometimes think that, you know what, God needs us right here. But, and he needs more of us like us. But we need to recognize that around the world, God is mobilizing his church. And they're doing amazing things. Things that would make our jaws go slack. And most of the time, this church looks or sounds nothing like us. This church is black and it's white, and it's brown, and it's yellow, it speaks Spanish, it speaks Mandarin, it speaks Swahili, it speaks French, it speaks Portuguese, it speaks in tongues, it's, it, it, uh, it speaks English, it speaks Arabic, it sees visions, it sees miracles, it sees people being raised from the dead, and evil spirits being cast out in Jesus' name. Many of its members don't even own a Bible, either because they're super poor or because it's not in their language yet, but they do love, you know, the Jesus of the Bible. This is the church, and this is us. And so we, here at Cornerstone, we are not indispensable. It's not all up to us. It's all up to God and whoever he chooses to use. And so what that means is that our job is to get ourselves into a place that we are ready to get on board with his plan and be used. Because it's in that moment of realizing that God does not need us, but he loves using us. It's in that moment that we're freed to see God's purpose in every little thing that we do. Even the giving of a, of a tiny cup of water, as verse 40, uh, 41 tells us, even this will be rewarded when it's done in the right spirit, which means that all of life is infused with meaning. It's incredible. We have to get to the back of the pack if we want to move ahead with the Lord. And so after telling his apprentices that they aren't all that and that he doesn't need them, still with this child in his arms, probably Peter's kid, still with his child in his arms, still in full-on rabbi mode as he sat there. Jesus says this, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand or your foot or your eye causes you to stumble, 
you should cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands or two feet or two eyes that you would... You end up in hell, where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, this phrase, little one, refers to this child in his arms, right? That's clear. But he's also talking about that man outside who was, who was, who was doing amazing things in Jesus' name and who Jesus' apprentices came up to and said, you've got to stop. He's the little child you see, this man was, was for sure someone young in the faith. Everyone was, was young in the faith back then, right? There was no one who'd be doing it for 30 or 40 years. They were all young in the faith. But this man who was young in the faith, he was using his um, spiritual gifts so that he could do great things for the Lord. And the temptation for us who are more mature or further along in our faith is to rain on the parade of the other people. That we can tell them, well, that's not really how the Lord works because that's not how we in our years of experience have experienced him. And this gets to be really dangerous. When we truly believe that we alone have the monopoly on understanding how God chooses to work, that can turn really ugly. It can turn into pride. It can turn into conceit. And it can stop the moving of the Holy Spirit among us. Nothing hinders, nothing ruins what, what the Lord wants to do like spiritual superiority. My Younger brother Josh, he's young in the Lord, but sometimes I feel that I need to sit at his feet and learn from him more than he needs to learn from me. You know, folks who are young in the faith, they don't know all the house rules. They're not housebroken yet, but they have a simple faith that can move mountains. Meanwhile, folks like me love to sit on the sidelines and we love to tell them how to play better. No, 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 you're doing it all wrong. This is how you do it. But the long and the short of it is at least they're in the game. Which is why, you know, the Lord at this moment lays a beat down on, on that person who would go up to a child in the faith and, and maybe squash what's happening. He says... He says, in effect, if you, through your words or, or you know, the way you live life, turn these excited new believers into cynical old farts like yourselves who think that you have the last word on how I work, then all I ask is that you would do maybe the only right thing that you would ever do in your life. Would you fill some rubber boots with cement? Would you put them on? And would you go jump in the ocean? We are the body of Christ. And, and if that body's going to be healthy, if there's part of it which is infected by cynicism or maybe pride, sometimes you know, the best thing for us to do is to chop it off. Because then that means that that sickness in that limb won't spread around the rest of the body. And yes, we say that you know, the Lord, he can heal, he's the physician. But sometimes the job of the physician is to chop off a limb. He sometimes has to amputate. But the much, much more wonderful choice 
then having something chopped off is for that hand or that eye or that foot to regain health and once again become a fully functioning member of the body. And that means that we say, I need you and you need me. And how do we do this? How come if, we're, if we, we are infected and we suspect that we're infected, how can we regain health again? And the answer is to get off the sidelines and to get back into the game by understanding that we're all part of the same body, that I'm not only accountable for myself, but I have a responsibility for you and for those in the faith who are maybe younger than me, who aren't as far down the road as I am. And I'm only 38, so some of you have that responsibility for me. And my responsibility is not to rein them in, but it's to lift them up in the Lord's ways. Yes, maybe we have to give them a little nudge every once in a while, but let's encourage them. You see, we expect those younger in the faith to be holy and sorted straight away. You know, to get it all as if, as if they've, you know, um, you know, yeah, we think that. But it took years for you and I and a lot of hard work for us to become as crusty and as self-righteous as we are. This man was called Apollos, and he was super gifted, really talented, and we read about him in Acts chapter 18, where we were told that he's smart, that he knew a lot of the Bible, and that he spoke really, really well. But we're also told that he only knew the baptism of John, which means that he wasn't aware of the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ, which, which means that he didn't know everything, which meant that he had room really to grow, and that there were some things that maybe he maybe got wrong. So how does the church respond? Well, you've got to shut him down. You've got to tell him where he's going wrong. We have to have a prayer meeting and share, share concerns, prayer requests about him, because he's not perfect. No, that's not how the church responded. Verse verse maybe 26, I think it is, says that when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to that home and they explained to him the way of the Lord more adequately. And so the first step is that we, we have to affirm when we see God using someone, even if they are young in their faith, even if what they're doing isn't 100% perfect. Second step, we need to show them where these areas of potential growth are them, are, are. And thirdly, we need to invite them into a mentoring relationship. What would have happened if these two folks had, had heard Apollos and they'd fixated on the areas of, of his understanding where he fell short? What, what would have happened if rather than being uh, gently honest with him, that they really badmouthed him to others? His theology isn't perfect, so we have to shut him down. What a missed opportunity we would have seen. But thank the Lord, instead, that they actually took him under their wing. They did not cause this little one to stumble. Instead, they allowed him to succeed and to thrive, and they poured their wisdom and God's grace into him. And the, and the result of this 
is that he goes on a missions trip and he's a great help there with, with that church. Plus he handles, him, he, he handles himself well in the public arena and he proves from scripture that the Lord is the Messiah. So he grew because of this man and this woman, Priscilla and Aquila. He went from being good to great. And so the lie that says I'm only responsible to God for myself is a lie. No, I need you and you need me. We are as healthy or as sick as our weakest member. And I hope that we never have to chop that member off for our health. Recently, I, I had an appraisal with with our local board of administration, these men and these women who I trust in the Lord. And it was great for me to hear from them where, you know, where I'm leading well here at the church. But even though it was harder, do you know what was super helpful for me? Was to hear areas where I have to grow and to hear areas where I maybe have to sharpen things up and even to hear about areas where maybe, where, where maybe I've failed These aren't easy to hear, but if it's spoken in love, it can be received in love, and it can totally transform you. I was not made to stumble through what they said because it was good, and it was with my interest and the church's interest at heart. Listen, we are not all that. None of us is. No way. And listen, God does not need us, not one of us, not at all. But listen, we need each other, absolutely, 100%. As Mark writes there to the suffering church in Rome, he writes in verse 49 that everyone will be purified or salted by the fire of suffering and hardship. And they know that reality. They are living that reality there there and then. But that saltiness, that wonderful flavor can be lost in when life is easy, when life is really comfortable. Salty can become unsalty. It can become rather tasteless. We can lose our witness. We can lose our witness when, when, when things are really comfortable. We can lose our impact in a world that needs the flavor of Christ. And we lose our saltiness when we buy into this threefold lie that I'm all that, that God needs me, and that I don't need you, and you don't need me. But how do we avoid that? Verse 49, by having salt among ourselves, which means living lives of real community, and by loving each other, and by living at peace with each other, And we do this in our grow groups. We do it on a Sunday morning. We do it over coffee. We do this as we choose to walk our journey together. We need to live in the fellowship of the cross. And so on this 45-kilometer journey from Caesarea Philippi down to Capernaum, Jesus' apprentices found this teaching of the cross hard, and so they started a stupid argument that broke Jesus' heart. When we don't keep the cross of Jesus central, we have to replace it with something else, and that's usually us. 
It's only as we look at the cross that, that we can resist those lies that want to creep in. It's only as we look at the cross that we are clear-minded enough to replace line number one, I'm all that, with truth number one, that Jesus is all that matters. It's only as we look at the cross that we become humble enough to replace line number two, that God needs me, with truth number two, that God can use whoever he wants to. And it's only as we look at the cross that we are convicted to replace line number three, I don't need you, you, with truth number three, I need you and you need me. The only way to get ahead with God is at the back of the pack. And so as a church, we have to hurry up and we have to take our seats on the bus because Jesus is ready to leave but that seat's at the back. But the good news is that back seat is absolutely massive. There's room for every single one of us on the back seat of Jesus' bus. And it's at that moment that Jesus can start driving us forward.